All right, that's the foghorn. That must mean it is time for the Cavus Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog, the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, one of the most widely used unmanned underwater vehicles in the U.S. Navy is the Remus family of UUVs, now produced by Huntington Ingalls Industries. HII has just introduced its new Remus 620 UUV with longer range and better payload capabilities. We'll talk with HII about what its new underwater drone can do. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. Japan is hosting this year's Malabar Naval Exercises, which kicked off on November 8th in the Philippine Sea with ships from Japan, Australia, India, and the United States. U.S. carrier Ronald Reagan and Japan's helicopter carrier Hyuga are the largest ships taking part. The maneuvers feature high-end tactical training events, submarine integration, anti-submarine and air defense exercises, joint warfighting planning scenarios, live fire events, and maritime interdiction operations. All the warships in the exercises took part in Japan's International Fleet Review on November 6th, marking the 70th anniversary of the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. U.S. Navy Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday was also in attendance, along with a large number of other heads of foreign navies. And between trips to the Western, Europe, Western Pacific and to Europe and at the Pentagon, Gilday in recent weeks has met face-to-face -face with at least 19 heads of Navy. The amphibious assault ship Macon Island left San Diego November 9th to deploy to the Indo-Pacific region with the 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit. The Macon Island's three-ship amphibious ready group includes the landing dock ships Anchorage and John P. Murtha. Also at San Diego on November 10th, the destroyer Zumwalt returned to home port after her first ever Western Pacific deployment. The Zumwalt deployed without fanfare in early August. Although Navy officials declined to provide details of the cruise, the ship was at Yokosuka, Japan in late September, where her presence was very publicly signaled. Zumwalt is scheduled to enter HII Ingalls Shipbuilding Yard in late 2023 to have both her advanced gun systems removed and replaced by missile tubes able to launch the newly developed conventional prompt strike hypersonic weapons. The aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford was the centerpiece of exercise Silent Warrior in the Eastern Atlantic this week. The Ford's multinational NATO strike group includes ships from Canada, Denmark, Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Spain. By November 11th, the ship was nearing the French coast and is to visit Portsmouth, England, beginning around November 15th. The British carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth left Portsmouth November 10 for an Operation Achillean deployment with a strike group to northern European waters. Embarked aboard Queen Liz are F-35B Joint Strike Fighters of 617 Squadron. The deployment is a significant expression, according to the British Ministry of Defense, of the country's commitment to safeguarding European security. Another British Royal Task Group, the Littoral Response Group, already is deployed to the Mediterranean. In shipbuilding news, Louisiana-based Bollinger Shipyards announced November 7th it is buying VT Halter Marine and ST Engineering Halter Marine offshore. The acquisitions by privately owned Bollinger marked the second straight year it purchased a competing yard along the Gulf of Mexico, having acquired Gulf Island Shipyards in 2021. Both halter yards were U.S.-based subsidiaries of foreign-owned Singapore Technologies. 
The acquisition means Bollinger will take over the U.S. Coast Guard's Polar Security Cutter Icebreaker Program from VT Halter Marine. The new yards will be known as Bollinger Mississippi Shipbuilding and Bollinger Mississippi Repair. Speaking of Bollinger, in Boston on November 10, the U.S. Coast Guard commissioned the new cutter William Chadwick, the 50th Fast Response Cutter. All built by Bollinger Shipyards is the first of six FRCs that will be based at Coast Guard Station Boston. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Across the world, the push to use more and more unmanned vehicles is on and on and ever growing in the air, on the surface of the sea, and on the, in the underwater realm. Uh, Huntington Ingalls Industries, which is well known for building ships on the surface and submarines under the surface, is also now in the underwater vehicle uh, business, and they've they acquired the Hydroid business some years ago, and they have, along with Hydroid, that comes with the Remus family of underwater vehicles. NHII is out with a brand new model of uh, Remus today. Uh, the Remus 620. With us to talk about it is Dwayne Fotheringham, president of Mission Technologies Unmanned Systems Business Group. So welcome to the podcast, Dwayne. Hey, thanks, Chris. Uh, appreciate you having me and excited to uh, to talk to you about our, our new vehicle and everything that we're doing in Unmanned. So Remus, I, I've, I've have seen a few of these things uh, here and there around the world. Um, this is a new model. What is, what is unique about uh, your news today? Yeah, so today we launched the, uh, the Remus 620, which is the uh, second generation medium class vehicle. It's a follow on to our original Remus 600 uh, vehicle. Um, and that has been in a, you know, a very successful vehicle. We've delivered over 175 of those worldwide to customers in the US, in the UK, um, Australia and Japan. But really, the, uh, the Remus 620 is a completely um, redesign of that medium-class vehicle. Uh, and it's, it's really taking the lessons learned that we, uh, from the recent um, launch of the um, Remus 300, which is the manned portable vehicle, and bringing all of that modular into the medium-sized vehicle. And that, uh, that modularity, that open architecture, um, including our energy system, gives us really unmatched um, in endurance, um, range, and payload flexibility. So a big thing that we've been working on with these vehicles is that, uh, is that, is that modularity. In this vehicle, we've added a standard um, interface to all of our payloads. So it really allows our customers um, or other third parties to build payloads for the vehicles that will integrate seamlessly into, uh, into the vehicle. We're following you know, open architecture standards. Um, for the, on the commercial side, also on the uh, US Navy side, uh, the unmanned maritime autonomy architecture. So we build our vehicles so that they're compatible with that architecture. And that really helps us um, you know, stay in line with what the Navy's vision is for how they're going to bring in um, autonomy solutions from different, uh, different vendors and bring them together really in a best of breed. And also, you know, the thing that makes the vehicle powerful is the, the payloads that we can put on it. So we want to make it really easy for our, our customers and other third parties to build um, payloads and integrate them into the vehicle. And these modular interfaces um, aid that. In addition, we, we offer hardware and software development kits um, to, uh, to help users build the software and build the hardware that would integrate into the vehicles. But, you know, for this vehicle, you know, for example... Um, it's capable of, you know, um, endurance up to 110 hours and 275 nautical miles. Um, 
And that's without a payload or a, a low draw payload. With a synthetic aperture sonar, we can do about 78 hours or 200 nautical miles. And I think the, the important thing out of that is that's really a four times increase over um, what we were getting with the previous generation of vehicles. So really um, game changing um, capabilities in what is a fairly low logistics platform of a medium sized UUV with a whole range of ability to launch and recover this vehicle from surface ships, unmanned vessels, from submarines. We recently demonstrated some launch and recovery from uh, um, amphibious uh, ships. And we've also demonstrated in the past launch and recovery from unmanned aerial vehicles. So a lot of ways to bring the vehicle um, to the station, a lot of capabilities in the vehicle, um, long endurance, um, modularity and open architecture so again so this this is really this is a multi-mission platform it's able to carry out any number of missions i know that remus family uh uuvs of the same size as this uh carry out uh mine countermeasures missions the you know remus itself the name comes from a remote environmental monitoring units uh which is something that woods hole developed uh, with with hydroid uh, i think uh, in, the, in the 1990s. So is that, it, does this have a specific mission, mission or is this a platform that can be adapted to multiple missions? And what are some of those missions? Yeah, so um, we often use the term, um, you know, one platform, many missions, because that is one of the keys, this vehicle in the, uh, in the modularity of the payload. So the most common application for the vehicles right now is mine countermeasures. Um, uh, and, you know, that's um, one of the standard uh, payloads that we have is either as a, a, a real aperture or synthetic aperture sonar for the vehicle. Um, the vehicles are also commonly used for hydrographic survey. The littoral battle space AUV program um, did hydrographic surveying uh, with the, uh, with the, uh, the vehicles. Um, the Razorback program, uh, you know, submarine launch and recovered does uh, um, intelligence gathering and uh, um, IPOE, intelligence preparation of the operational environment um, type missions. But we can also integrate onto the vehicle um, cyber and electronic warfare packages. Um, we build uh, some of those packages within HII, and that's one of the, uh, you know, you talked early about, uh, you know, um, coming in in the strategy for HII and how we, um, you know, bring a lot of capabilities to the unmanned. So it's also using those other pieces of the company to, uh, to bring capabilities to our vehicles. But we in the past have um, integrated multiple um, uh, electronic warfare and ISR packages into the vehicles. Another interesting thing that we've done is, uh, um, is integrate unmanned aerial vehicles that we can launch from below the sea um, from, a, from a submerged UUV and you know, that brings a lot of capabilities and, and that can be for, for surveillance, but you could also see that extended to um, where you're seeing the uh, um, unmanned aerial vehicles used a lot right now in, uh, in the applications for loitering munitions. So you can, you not only can uh, go out and do survey um, and intelligence gathering with the vehicle, but you can bring effects from the vehicle from, from under the sea and, and deliver those on station over long um, distances with the, uh, with the endurance of this vehicle. Hey, Dwayne, it's uh, Chris Sorella. Thanks for joining us. I, I think this is super cool. I I'm on the website now looking at you know, the comparison between the 100, the 300, the 620, and the 6,000. And I would encourage our listeners, we'll post the link in the podcast to do that because you get a sense of, I think the 100s are pretty well known in the fleet, or I would say are 
are more known in, in terms of you, you know what they can do and the, those types of missions. Let let's dig a little bit more into the the conops, the concept of operations in terms of how these could be used. You you just talked a little bit about it, but you, you know when when we first started talking about this maybe five or six years ago you needed imagination. And now what you see pretty much every day or read every day in Ukraine, you really can see how these things come together. And when you start thinking about uh, a potential scenario uh, in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Straits, you really see the benefit of these types of platforms not being 10 years away or 20 years away as some of our other unmanned capabilities are. But I mean, these are available right now. So I mean, tomorrow, if I'm a fleet commander and I want to do some either experimentation or or take on some new missions, I I can work through the acquisition systems and bring these on board, right? I mean, can you talk about some of that and how they could be used today, which I think is the coolest part of this? Yeah. So, you know, how they can be used today, as I said, the the most common application right now is mine countermeasures. So if you, you know, you imagine a scenario um, like you were talking about in uh, in Ukraine, there's going to be a large need to go in um, at some point in clear ports and open them up to uh, um, to navigation. Um, to open them up and, you know, once they're, uh, once they're secured. And so, you know, missions like that have been run with the Remus vehicles all the way back to uh, 2003 when the, uh, um, the Remus 100 was used to uh, clear Om Kasser in, uh, um, in Iraq. So, you know, you can see that at mission extending on. Um, but what you get in the medium-sized vehicle now and what you get um, in the new Remus 620, where we have a lot longer um, endurance and more capabilities with mission um, packages, you could, in, you could, in theory, have one vehicle with multiple payloads that could be changed out um, in the field to perform uh, many missions. And right now, we typically deliver these UUVs with some other platform. So we bring them out maybe an 11-meter rib or in some cases, submarine delivered. When you get this long legs now on the vehicle of 275 nautical miles, um, you can now um, conceivably swim a vehicle um, you know, a lot further undetected um, into a contested environment and carry out survey missions, carry out um, intelligence missions, um, you know, launch, as I said, um, unmanned aerial vehicles. If you look at, uh, you know, in, in time and distance, the, you know, you mentioned Taiwan and uh, the Taiwan Straits, you know, it's about 110 nautical miles across the Straits. And we now have a vehicle that can go out on its own and perform missions, you know, upwards of 200 nautical miles. So, um, you know, easy to, uh, to imagine how you could, could use that capability in those, uh, in those situations. Um, and, you know, these vehicles, as we've proven in the past, are capable of being launched and recovered from, from submarines. So now you can really um, expand the mission of a, of a manned platform. You can have it in many places at once. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, talk in the press over the last couple of weeks about uh, um, torpedo tube recovery of the vehicles. And so... And I think, uh, you know, Chris mentioned our long relationship and really the technology coming out of uh, coming out of Woods Hole. Um, well, Woods Hole is is one of the places where they're working on the technology for um, torpedo tube um, recovery. And that uh, that technology is directly compatible with our vehicles and could be outfitted to our vehicles. Um, and of course, there's some testing that needs to be done there. But, um, you know, that that technology exists today for us to run those um, those types of missions. 
Dwayne, we had uh, Representative Mike Gallagher on l- last week, um, and you know we asked him about uh, unmanned systems, and y- you know he uh, he, he kind of laid out kind of the two schools of thought. You know, one is is that the folks on the Hill, and he believes even in the Navy, are a little skeptical about programs that are going to take you know, one or two fit ups to, to come to uh, maturity and um, where the technology isn't flushed out. And then he was really bullish uh, on what he called off the shelf technology li- like yours. I'm sure you hear a lot of this either from the Hill or uh, from uh, your customers. Can you talk a little bit about, you, you know, the maturity that you guys, um, you, you know, are dealing with and, and you know, the different levels of risk uh, for the, these uh, these programs? Yeah, of course. And I I think that that's a really important distinction to make between, um, you know, things that are um, more or less off the shelf today and have been in use for, you know, um, 20 plus years and things that really do have problems or or things that still need to be solved to 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 field them. And when we, you know, on one end, when you're talking about the um, large unmanned surface vessels, there are a lot of um, things to solve there with uh, with machinery and maintenance and long time at sea with uh, with no personnel. But on the other end of the spectrum, you know, are some of our small and medium sized UUVs that have been in use um, in militaries for 20 years. I mentioned earlier, you know, the even the use back to uh, um, 2003 of uh, Remus 100s in combat situations, and those are extremely mature technologies um, that are available today, and they can go out and perform missions. They're they're more or less off the shelf. You know, we've um, spent the last year or so designing this uh, this new medium-sized UUV, using all of those lessons learned about and and a mature technology solution, bringing new pieces of technology in and new pieces of autonomy into it, but blending that into a really reliable, um, you know, trusted. Um, field-proven um, set of capabilities, and and I think it is important to look at that whole spectrum of of maturity and risk across unmanned, and get those things out there today that are ready today, and keep working on those things that uh, you know will help us solve problems in the future. And that's also part of uh, um, you know industry's work is to help solve those challenges of those newer pieces of technology to get them out there into the field and uh, solving the warfighters problems. One of the things that's on the information sheet is it says that uh, a key feature is that it's cyber ready. Can you explain a little bit about that? Is that a hardening to keep it from being, uh, you know, spoofed or intercepted, or does it have the ability to deliver um, cyber effects as well? So there's two pieces there. When you're talking about an offensive cyber capability, and we certainly um, can carry payloads that uh, that bring a, an offensive cyber capability. But we're talking about, in this case, the vehicle being cyber ready. Um, we're talking about about the uh, the protection of data on the vehicle, the protection of the uh, of the vehicle, um, and the reason we say cyber ready is because um, each of our customers has a different type of requirement. You know, whether it's it's encrypting of data in transit or encrypting of data at rest or other more complicated cyber solutions. So what we've done there to to make sure that the vehicle is um, um, you know fits all of our users' needs is we've uh, reserved the size, weight, and power that we expect that these cyber solutions will take. And then that's where we can customize for each customer's uh, um, unique needs. And instead of coming to the table with a a set solution, because even now in programs that we work on, there are several different types of solutions. But what the message that we want to get across there is that, uh, you know, 
these vehicles are capable of doing that and have that, uh, you know, and that's the most important thing in, uh, in an underwater vehicle, size, weight, power, you're always dealing with that trade-off. So having that space reserved and that capability built into the vehicles is very important. Well, as I said, I mean, I, I could spend another hour geeking out about this. I think this is uh, fantastic. I really appreciate you guys reaching out and uh, spending some time with us today. We've been talking to Dwayne Fotheringham, uh, president of Mission Technologies Unmanned Systems Business Group uh, at HII. Uh, Dwayne, thank you very much for your time and um, you know, look forward to having you back on the pod uh, to tell us how uh, the 620 is going as it's introduced to uh, your customers, but also to hear about, um, you know, some of the other uh, great things that you guys are doing. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to share with you today. Thank you. Okay. Well, moving on to an entirely different topic. Uh, last week, we, uh, we attended the annual Submarine League Symposium in uh, Crystal City, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. It's a two-day event. Happens every year. Uh, it's always interesting. The, uh, the, the submariners all get together. They uh, speak with pretty much one voice. It's a very close community. Um, they, uh, the, the, the silent service is usually pretty good about not, um, not talking too much and not saying things out of line. But apparently this time, uh, some of what, what was going on, what was coming out of that uh, meeting annoyed some of the uh, annoyed some ears at the top level of the U.S. Navy. Uh, we're, we're told the Secretary of the Navy thought there was probably a little too much messaging going on and some guidance has been issued, at least verbally, uh, to people to watch out what they're saying. Um, the, the repercussions of this still remain to be seen in terms of Navy communications. Uh, we're hoping it doesn't... Uh, draw back, uh, you know, pull back too many things in terms of, you know, uh, several conferences that are, that, are, that, are, that are coming up, including uh, Service Navy Association in uh, January. Um, but it is it is sort of another chilling message. Uh, Chris, what, do you, what have you heard about this? So you're right, Chris. I mean, I, I have heard that um, the secretary and other uh, uniform leadership was disappointed um, at the pre-decisional information that was shared by some of the submarine uniformed folks. Um, the idea being that, um, you know, not only are some of these decisions still very much in play within the Navy, but that they haven't been properly socialized uh, with DOD uh, to say nothing of Capitol Hill. So for them to be um, kind of thrown out into the open um, at sub league or any other conference, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that it um, annoyed uh, Secretary Del Toro and his staff. Um, apparently, um, this is something that he identified very early in his tenure as, as something that made his job difficult. Uh, when folks go to these conferences, um, and, you know, essentially don't stay on message. And by message, I mean, um, they don't share or they share too much or um, they they don't really, you know, communicate the larger value of the Navy. Right. I think what I, part of what I've heard uh, was annoying or were some comments about things that are pre-decisional. Uh, always, always kind of a fun term, I think. I, you know, me as a communications person, a reporter in the media, always trying to communicate things. I think the kind of thing we're always looking for is pre-decisional information. That aside, um, some of the comments came out about uh, the Navy is considering slapping doing service life extensions of two or maybe even up to five Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines. Um, they may uh, be asking for a block buy for the new Columbia class ballistic missile submarines. They may they may be considering uh, more service life extensions of existing 
SSN-688 class attack submarines, things like that. Um, and, and to be sure, you know, the, the Subleague is sort of a, the vibe around Subleague, nobody ever comes out like and drops a bomb. It's never, you know, I, now I'm here, here, here's my new announcement. Everybody goes gasp. Uh, it never happens that way. They will, they will kind of drop things in like, well, you know, we're looking at the overall size of the ballistic missile strategic submarine force. We, we might be considering up to maybe two or five slaps of existing boats, but, you know, we're still looking at that and that's, and, and that's exactly how it, it drops out. And then people look around that. Did you, did you know that? Had you heard that before? Um, so it's never like a blatant statement out there. It kind of, it kind of dribbles out. They're very, very good at that. They're, they're extremely subtle, but you do have to wonder, I mean, there is this terror of predecisional information and sometimes it's by law sometimes it's by policy nobody inside the pentagon or any other government agency wants to signal what they're thinking about frankly because then congress starts calling up and goes i hear you guys are doing this and what, what about it and that that is predecisional that's ahead of the game uh, they're trying to influence it before the budget is sent over to the hill and that's that that that's a normal human response i think on the other hand, pre-decisional information is exactly what everybody wants to be talking about. What are the issues? What are you considering? What might you do? I mean, people actually do talk about the Super Bowl before it's played and it's over. Just saying. So the fact that it's pre-decisional all by itself is sort of a and yes. And what else have you got? But the devil's in the details, Chris. And and yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, there is absolutely a way to talk about things that you would like to do. There's a way to talk about pre-decisional things. Um, you just have to either A, um, coordinate the, the message and make sure that no one is surprised or B, do it in a way that doesn't give too much information. I, I worked for a master of this. Uh, Bill Moran was very good at, uh, I mean, he he sort of conjured up the whole Sailor 2025 in public. I mean, was, you know, everywhere we went, we kind of talked about what was wrong with the personnel system and what would, what we could do and what we'd like to do. He just didn't put dollar figures to it. He didn't put exact numbers and he didn't put exact dates. And I know that's, that is not satisfying to a lot of reporters, but I think there is a way to thread the needle and, and not paint the secretary of the CNO into a corner. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And Admiral Moran was an, is an absolute past master at that sort of thing. Um, and he, and he doesn't play from fear. Um, I guess that's one of the things that, that you, you sense around Navy leadership very often. And this isn't, I can't point the finger to any one or five people. It's a lot of people. Uh, people are afraid what they're going to hear once they say something, and then they go back and read their emails or answer a phone call. Um, they're very afraid and they're always afraid. And I mean, they're afraid. Um, and they, and that comes across in spades over and over and over one service that doesn't come across that way is the air force i went to the air force association uh, symposium again this this year i mean those people are on point about air power they sell the air force i think uh, the the current secretary frank kendall has been around a long time people know him very well um does not shy you know never never saw a microphone didn't want to speak to um never saw a room people didn't want to talk to he has his people out talking up the Air Force all the time. And you can't just say, we're great, we're wonderful, you need to support us. That doesn't work. And the Submarine League used to do that. They were so afraid of, they just don't talk about details. And every year they'd say, you got to get out and tell people how important we are and how you need to support us. Okay, what do you do? Well, everybody needs us. We, we do important stuff. Okay, what do you do? Well, I can't tell you. Well, then I, everybody thinks they're important. 
who doesn't think they're important? I'm important. You're important. So I, give me something, give me something more than that. And I think the Air Force is a good example, has been and continues to be not afraid. I think you're right. I, I would offer a, um, a couple uh, explanations for why I think they're as good as they are at it or as consistent. One, they actually believe in air power. Um, and air power is a unifying uh, theme and doctrine that um, is pervasive across all communities of the Air Force. Now, I, I don't know enough about the Air Force to say that they're not, you know, parochial or that there aren't pockets of parochialism. Um, but I mean, in the Navy, we don't believe in sea power. I mean, we make decisions based on community interests and on budgeting. And then we sort of backdoor it into sea power from a thematic standpoint. And I think people have realized that. So it makes it a lot easier to be consistent in how you communicate if you actually believe in what you're doing and believe in your strategy. And then when you have a guy like Frank Kendall, who is, uh, uh, you know, really believes in it and is very good at communicating, uh, it makes it really easy. It does. Okay. You and I are going to stop talking about this, but we're going to hear a little more from you. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, it's time for Squawk Box, and Mr. Savello weighs in on a subject he is all too familiar with, Navy public communications. If the Navy flew planes or drove ships the way they currently communicate, the entire force would be grounded or tied to the pier. So why is it that we accept such a lackluster effort when it comes to communication? The Navy needs a communication stand down in a bad way. They need a dedicated period of time to refine their message, hone their tactics, and better link engagement to goals. I don't blame the CNO or the secretary for wanting to put a lid on the current effort. It's only human to want to hide in plain sight when things aren't going the way you like. But instead of enforcing a gag rule or dodging engagements because they don't like what people are going to say, I'd love to see them lead the service towards a new and more effective approach. Our last discussion is just the latest example of why such a change is needed. The default way of doing outreach, primarily by warfare community, isn't doing the Navy any favors. In fact, it often leads to disjointed messaging, misunderstandings, and to be candid, ass-chewings from farther up the chain of command. Simply put, it holds the Navy back within the building, on the hill, and with the public writ large. Most engagements result in flag officers getting over their skis on issues they aren't empowered to discuss or the sharing of boring canned pablum they obviously don't believe in or care about. Just go to any community-sponsored event like Surface Navy or, again, the Sub League, and this is what you're likely to hear. Community talking points or cries for more money not linked to the need for a Navy or national sea power. Again, a new approach is desperately needed. Central in a stand-down that results in a new strategy and a set of tactics would be the refinement of messaging, the retraining of how and why to engage, and the creation of a process that rewards the combining of alignment and candor and punishes lackluster performance and miscommunication. As my friend Brian McGrath has argued for years, effective communication ought to be part of the job. Leaders from the SECNAV on down need to force the service to do better to be smarter, and to be more effective. I'd love to see a holistic change of how and where the Navy communicates. There are hundreds of talented public affairs professionals that can help facilitate this change. The leadership simply needs to recognize the problem and then empower people to make the needed adjustments, rewarding and holding them accountable along the way. 
Well said again, partner. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Thank you.